Welcome to the 12th episode of Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Adi Bulboaka. I hope I pronounced that right. I've tried it a couple times before, but... Yeah, it sounds good. Okay. Adi, would you mind introducing everyone a little bit about yourself? I'm a programmer, but I also do some training and coaching, and in 2009 I started doing code reads, first attending and then facilitating code reads, and last three, four years, I've been wandering around Europe to facilitate code retreats just for fun in the local user groups. And I started having this passion about teaching others how to code. And this is basically what I do now, teaching others how to code better, teaching design or how to manage better their time and their activities using agile and lean techniques. Yeah, I got you as a recommendation from Corey Haynes when I asked about code retreats and the emergence of functional languages showing up. Do you want to kind of give an outline from your perspective about code retreats for anybody who's not familiar with what that concept is? Yeah, sure. So the concept comes from back in 2008, if I remember well, when four guys met in a conference in USA and Corey's one of them. And they thought, what about doing one day of full practice on trying to improve our way of coding. So what they come up to with a format and then they made an internal one only with people that they invited and they fiddled about with it and then they started thinking about names and then after all they called it code retreat. Basically the idea was to try to have a full day when programmers would focus on practice and not on solving problems. So it's completely the other thing that we do at work when we want to solve problems and we want to have these things done as fast as we can. Here we want to take time so that we could really learn why and how we are doing things. The format is we have six sessions of 45 minutes. We have a problem that is presented by the facilitator. And during each session, people do pair programming. And for each session, there is a constraint that the facilitator chooses. So we can have constraints like programming without conditionals or don't have any primitives or stuff like that, but also other more complicated constraints that might relate with testing or event-driven and so on. And basically, the concept comes from the idea of software craftsmanship and wanting to improve yourself always and to take the time to understand that you always need to improve your practice and sharpen your soul. I hit two of them a number of years ago, and then I helped put one on for Global Day of Code Retreat. So I was very interested because that's why I started seeing some more closure being done which kind of started when I was getting into functional programming. But I wanted to get with you and kind of talk about some of those constraints and the way it works, because, as you said, there's some constraints on there which kind of come from a very OO-style background. Yeah, that's true. Uh, They come from OO background, but there are a lot that come only from the design point of view, which can be applied to both of them, either OOP or functional or 
I don't know, dynamic languages, static languages. There are some concepts that you could apply to any language. Some of those, like the no methods or functions longer than three lines, is a common one. Yeah, or naming things appropriately, or no naked variables. Try to always have a good name for your classes, for your methods, for your uh, packages, or any structures that hold classes together or functions together. Or, I guess, the no return values where you're passing in blocks or functions to other functions if you need something done instead of actually calling a function and getting the return value. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you've been doing this for a while and going to code retreats and facilitating them. How have you noticed the languages kind of evolve in that time? Because I know it started out and it was pretty heavy duty in the Ruby community from what I had seen, like Ruby and Python, right? Well, in the beginning, the code retreats were created only with Java. So the constraint for the first countries that Corey had facilitated, there was this constraint that everyone should do Java. Then he came here to Romania where he facilitated his first code read in Europe. And we came with the idea that probably it would be a good idea to let other programming languages. He was afraid that if we'd introduce other programming languages, code read might shift from learning our techniques to learning a new language. So we tried this out and it worked very well. And after that, Corey also ditched his rule about Java as a language. And that's the moment when it started being very popular in all the communities who are focused on having good quality code like Python, Ruby, Rails, maybe Clojure and so on. Wasn't sure how much you had seen that evolve as well. So pretty much in Java and seeing the functional languages creep in, because I'm sure once you opened it up, at least the couple I saw, there was a lot of Ruby, quite a bit of Python, a little bit of Java and C Sharp. And there were like one person who kind of knew Clojure. And I think that was most of the functional languages that I had seen when I had gone to them. So I was wondering... How have you seen that progression happen? Was it really one person at a time? And did we start getting more? And kind of what languages did you just kind of start to see come through with the functional side? So it's a very strange thing that, in a way, it depends on the city or on the country. Because there are some places where you mostly have static languages in the local area. So there aren't any businesses that do dynamic languages or functional languages programming. So for those cities, you have more static language programmers and maybe only if there are some passionate functional programmers around, but they aren't doing this during their jobs. They're just doing it for fun. And there are other places where it's the other way around, where you'll you'll see a lot of functional programming going on and just one or two Java, C-sharp people and that's all. So it's also a thing of that depends on geography. But in the, let's say, big cities, big communities where you'd always have diversity, I saw that in the beginning uh, there were mostly Java and C-sharp programmers, but then they started to appear JavaScript 
especially JavaScript programmers, and then a bit of Ruby, Python a bit later. And also I saw a couple of people doing Erlang or other less used functional programming languages like Haskell. And in the last year or so, I saw more closure probably going on than the last few years. As I, I talked with them, this happens mainly because of big data and more and more companies tend to use Closure for big data, and they hire programmers that know how to use Closure for that. So, because I know at least when I've went, I had a Corey facilitate twice, and the one we helped organize down here, I believe, did it as well. Was they showed the APL version of Conway's Game of Life, which is the problem for the code retreat. Yeah, and it was one of those. Completely different strategies and ways of approaching a problem because you're now thinking in different ways. And I read the, and again, I'm going to get this wrong. It's the O'Reilly closure book, the programming closure, I believe, the O'Reilly version. And in there, they kind of outline Conway's Game of Life and they do essentially three different steps, which was a very literal translation of what you do as more of an OO style one that was a little more functional, and then one that was completely functional and kind of completely rethought the process, almost in the way that the APL kind of rethinks the process. Is that something you're seeing drastically different responses to when people are bringing in functional programming languages and working with them versus the OO languages? Yeah, it's definitely very different, especially with the hardcore functional programming languages like Haskell or Lisp or Erlang, they have totally different solutions. The same closure, they have totally different solutions and usages than the OOP languages. The only thing I struggle with during CodeReads when I facilitate, and there are a lot of people doing functional programming, is that they tend to not understand the importance of giving good names to variables. Even though... The code is more abstract. It tends to be harder to read, and they don't see this as a problem. Probably for them it's easy, but if they would have someone junior and reading the code, probably that person will have an issue with that. And this is usually the struggle of trying to understand them, to push them to more cleaner code from the reading point of view, the name of variables, names and functions, and so on. And I think this is something that comes also from the languages and how they are used in the community. And I think this should be improved in a drastic manner, in my view. I guess one of the things I've noticed, and especially coming in when I started learning functional programming and the ease of things like probably what you're talking about is not actually extracting lambdas out of things like map and reduce, where that small little code snippets in line and you've got a function in line of another function instead of pulling it out and giving it a proper name that says here's exactly what this little lambda is doing instead of just using it as a lambda, right? That's one way of putting it, but even when they use variables, they try to use very short names, like one, two, three letter things which aren't at all readable. And same with functions. Usually names of functions that have lambdas or anything or other constructs, they try to make them very short. 
and they are very hard to understand usually. Is that something that people just aren't thinking about, and then once you point it out to them and work with them, they're usually pretty receptive, or is that something that you found is more deeply ingrained on some of these people where you have to continue calling it out and continue calling it out, and it's one of those, a real fight through the whole day across all the different sessions? Yeah, usually it is kind of a fight during the sessions, and they tend to say that, you know, my construct would become too long if I name this better, so I prefer like that, I know what it means. So, yeah, it is a problem, and I don't know exactly where it comes from, but it is a problem in my view, and I think clean code rules should apply no matter what language you apply, even though they came from other worlds, from static world, it's still important to be able to read code fairly easily, even if you don't know the language. Yeah, that makes sense. Kind of mentioned on, I guess, I think it was the first podcast I had with Uncle Bob, where I was doing a Project Euler Problems Enclosure, and the person who blogs at Arcane Sentiment came through, and I was doing a Reduce Plus. Well, why don't you go ahead and actually give this an expressive name and call it Sum and pull that out as a function? Because, yeah, you Reduce Plus is the same as Sum, but actually calling it out as Sum makes it cleaner. And it's one of those things I kind of saw... From everything you read about functional programming, you see these kind of obtuse functions, but giving them the names and extracting, I can see where you're going with the clean code does make a difference. Yeah, so usually when I have a lot of programmers doing functional programming, I I tend to focus more on clean code because of that. It's not always happening, but most of the times this is the case. Trying to focus on how to extract things, how to focus on minimizing duplication because sometimes they have same lambdas in different functions or very similar things that they don't spot. And I try to focus on, on these things, naming, extracting in order to see duplication, making the code more abstract and more usable from all the points of views. How have you found the extraction of code and pulling out onto a higher abstraction with functional programmers. I know that's one of the things that is touted highly is that, in theory, it's easy to extract methods out and use that and be able to take in higher order function, make them higher order functions where they take in other functions to do the specifics, but how have you noticed that in practice in more of the real world with the people who actually come to the code retreat? Well, unfortunately, what I see is that they accept duplication. And they don't really want to go towards higher order functions or really reusing functions. And I think this is also an issue with functional programming. Well, not with the languages, but with how they are used in the industry. And because I think there aren't enough clear standards on clean code. And people don't put this stress on uh, or they don't stress this importance of having smaller amount of code that does the same thing and it's easier to change and so on. So basically the problem remains on the fact that they don't really spot duplication and even if I spot it and I show it to them, they just say, well, this is how you you'd write closure or something like that. I don't like to have too many functions. They are too small and... It's too complicated, or something like that. 
sounds like you're getting a lot of the arguments that at least I heard back in the early days of clean code concepts coming out and things like Code Complete and then Uncle Bob's book and the Pragmatic Programmers and a couple of others where it's like, it sounds like those same arguments with respect to functional programming as opposed to object-oriented. I think, in a way, because they weren't used so much in production in, I don't know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, now we start needing them because of their power of being able to compute big amount of data and to parallelize stuff. And there aren't enough standards in the industry, so probably they are how Java was from the clean point of view like 10 years ago or something like that. And hopefully we'll be able to speed things up with events like CodeReads to show them that, hey, we did this already 10 years ago with Java, C-sharp, JavaScript, and so on. So this is really a good practice, and the sooner you apply it, the better for you and your code base. Is there any kind of... I know this is kind of tricky over a podcast, but are there any kind of tangible examples of those duplicated functions that you've seen, at least that you could kind of cover over audio without having the code necessarily, or... Because I know you do a lot of write-ups as well on your blog about things you've learned from code retreats. Do you have any examples of some of the functional stuff that we can refer people to to say, like, here's a before and here's an after? I didn't write anything on this topic, but what I could just briefly say is that there are some concepts in Conway's Game of Life where you basically want to have some rules, for example. So... You could either say that you apply these rules in a function, so you write only one function with those rules, or you will create four functions that will be applied in the same time with a dispatch mechanism or something. And usually what I see is people trying to write the four rules from Conway's Game of Life into one function, but if you think about solid principles that, yeah, also come from OP, but still, single responsibility principle, I think, applies deeply in any functional programming language. You should try to think about how that function has a single responsibility or not. So it depends, of course, on the actors of the system, but I often see things like that being cluttered, being pushed into the same function. And another example could be maybe how you apply these rules. Often they are too tightly coupled, so the design becomes something that's very hard to change. For example, I have this exercise where we change the structure of the algorithm from having a two-dimensional orthogonal system of axes to Conway's Game of Life with hexagonal system of axes in two dimensions. And often this shows you how good or bad your design was. Often what happens is that you'll see too high coupling between who applies the rules, what are the rules, how the space is defined, and so on. So basically, I see that both in OOP or in functional programming languages, that programmers don't really separate these things. And they have a hard time after that when I say, okay, now the game has changed, how easy is to, to change your design, change your code? So probably, again, we need to learn a lot about software design, also in functional programming. 
I can absolutely agree with that. And I can see where some of those examples would be very tied in, because I think what you were describing was instead of a square cell with its neighbors, you've got a hexagonal square, which means it's got a different arrangement of neighbors, correct? Yeah, and basically the rules are that the immediate neighbors, you have two tires of neighbors, and instead of adding the number of neighbors, you make a kind of calculation, and you have an interval that decides if the cell will die or not. So also the structure becomes more complicated, the space becomes more complicated. The rules need more than just the first layer of neighbors, they need the second layer of neighbors, and things become more complicated. I can definitely see that, just starting to picture some of that. I never actually had those constraints applied when I did my code retreats, but I can definitely see how that would be a interesting challenge in OO or functional or whatever style of language you were doing. Yeah. So in a way, code treats for me are the place where I could struggle to find some constraints that apply to all programming languages, to all the frameworks, so that we become truly technology agnostic, so that we could talk about design or how do we structure the code, how we change it, cost of change, how we manage risks in code, and so on. So these are the things I like to do during code reads, and they apply deeply to functional programming as well. Absolutely. I guess I was kind of coming through and thinking at it before we started talking. I was kind of coming through with kind of thinking that it kind of lends itself towards a solution where people might actually be done a lot quicker just because of the way you approach the problem. Because your time box to 45 minutes, and when you're done, you throw away the code. So I was kind of thinking, coming in, that if you write the test, and if you can approach it right, you may actually be able to be done and almost get the whole GUI problem done cleanly. But I can see we're trying to tackle some of these other constraints that you have, where you may only have one small part of the world done by the time that 45 minutes is over in functional languages as well as the object-oriented languages. Yeah, I think I saw two or three times some guys in JavaScript finishing this problem in like 35 minutes, but the code was such a mess, so they couldn't reuse anything. So if the constraint would be something around clean code or design, they would be missing the point. So you could finish this in functional languages faster than in OOP languages, probably mostly because you don't have a lot of boilerplate code, but you can do a lot of mistakes if you're in a hurry, and these mistakes are often from the software design and clean code side. Okay. I guess that just kind of goes on to lead into another question about when people are doing these functional languages, have you found... Those people who are kind of familiar with functional languages, as they kind of go back and forth between functional languages and object-oriented languages in the day, because you pick a pair and you may be working in different languages, have you noticed some of those people who kind of are working with functional bring back different ideas in the OO side when they work in a more OO language? Yeah, definitely. I really love when you have a mixed group of static, dynamic, functional, all, all these uh, types of languages. So the, the attendees can really learn from each other. And definitely they will try to keep the 
so language is shorter in a way. So they always focus. This is what I saw that they always focus on asking stuff like, okay, but why is this so complicated? Can't you write it simpler? Or why do you need all this stuff? Or and always they are puzzled, especially programmers who've never done static languages. They are puzzled about the amount of code you need to write to do a simple thing. And the same thing after that when, let's say, programmers that do static languages try to use Clojure or Pascal or something like that, they will understand how fast it is to start working to do something, but also they have some issues with being able to read the code. And as I see it, it's learning from both sides because... People that mainly do static languages or OP languages, they will understand that they could use some concepts from functional programming. They could use the ideas of lambdas and the ideas of maybe even passing functions from once in a while or having an immutable state. And also people that do mainly functional programming will think about how they could maybe structure their code better so it could be better understood by others. That was one of the other things I was wondering was kind of that cross-pollination where you had people who were kind of walking the line between both and bringing those ideas back into one style versus another. But it sounds like you kind of gave a fairly good overview of some of those things you were seeing. And another thing I wanted to mention here is that there are certain sessions that I specifically use to push people that do static languages to write functional programming. And one of them is one called Tell Don't Ask. I don't know if you know about this. It's basically something that says that you cannot access the internal state of a class and any method call will send all the data needed to retrieve the answer. And then you basically have something like pure functions. So you'd need to have each method computing the output only using its internal state. And this is quite difficult for some programmers doing OOP languages, but they start understanding how code starts being more detached. So you'll have functions that aren't attached to the state, and then you'd be able to change them without worrying. And this is very interesting. And also, yeah, I focus on sessions uh, where I try to explain how they could use lambdas. In languages like C-sharp, it's fairly easy. In Java or C++, you can do this as well. Not that easy, but you can do this. And often they are not aware that their language has this feature. And they start liking it often, but not a lot of them, but most of them really think it's something interesting that they didn't know about their language. Yeah, and the tell don't ask seems to apply equally to functional programming as well. Because instead of getting that return value back and wanting that, you would just pass in another function which would operate on that value and get that value passed in. Essentially sort of a callback mechanism in one sense, but essentially a block in Ruby or C-sharp or something else in another sense where now that you're taking those functional ideas and thinking in passing functions around as first-order citizens, you can now do that, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the code looks so so different then. Especially with Teldon Task, the code looks extremely different in OOP languages. In functional languages, there is a bit of a difference, but not that much. It's just that programmers were really 
focusing on this technique and the code in my view looks better you mentioned you saw some Erlang and some Clojure, and did you mention you saw some Haskell creeping in as well with people who are coming to the code retreats? Yeah, it's sometimes there's one guy doing Haskell, and then usually whoever is doing Haskell is like the magnet of the others because it's that strange language that no one knows, and it's like him doing Haskell most of the sessions with someone else. And it's very interesting because everyone is attracted by Haskell. I don't know why. Maybe because it's a very concise language and interesting to use. I think with Erlang, it was a bit the same. Not that attractive as Haskell, but Erlang was very popular. I had it like five or six times during code treats. And it was interesting, especially on how they saw the solutions. And they sometimes programmers in Erlang came with Solutions totally new to me and very different and interesting and innovative. And I think this comes because of the language. What were some of the strategies you saw with people coming in using Erlang? Was it a lot of more concurrency style stuff through the different processes where different cells are different processes? Or what was some of that stuff you were seeing with Erlang? Oh, I think once I saw a solution where instead of having this coupling between rules and cells, they would just kind of, in a way, dispatch rules to all the cells, and then basically you'd have this concurrent computation of dead and alive cells, and basically you don't need to do anything than broadcast this message. Hey, cells, apply these rules. And then they would write the state to somewhere else, and hey, that's the new generation. Interesting. Yeah, I've been doing some with Erlang, but I haven't actually tried to sit down and actually do a game of life implementation of it, and I can see where the ways with the concurrency and the message passing could lead some very interesting solutions that are different than what you would come up with. My guess of a Haskell or Clojure or some of these others, or even JavaScript, which is a little more in line with what people think of as functional, where Erlang kind of crosses that line between functional and OO in the original sense of distinct cells passing messages to each other. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it is very different. Yeah, with Haskell, I didn't see a lot of very innovative solutions. I think most of the people that were doing Haskell were just passionate about it, so they weren't using it a lot. But definitely their solutions are extremely interesting to show to people because you know what you'd write in Java in seven classes and four five hundred rows of code you'd probably end up in Haskell with fifteen or twenty lines of code. Yeah, that's one of the things I saw with one of the closure implementations, but I don't know how much it would have passed your standards of clean code just because it was that concise where it was only about five lines long. Yeah, that's the idea. But you can really show it to people and say, look, Haskell can do that, but how easy is it to understand for you? And this is a very good feedback also for the people doing Haskell, making them know that this code isn't just for you. Well, now it is maybe because you're practicing, but if you use this in production, it will be very difficult to change. So you need to take this into account when writing very difficult, very abstract code like this. That could be an interesting way to frame the argument with those Haskell people who are the magnets to everybody else's 
they've actually done a lot of Haskell, but it's like, okay, well, what about your partner? Is your partner who you're pairing with right now able to come through and say, oh, I get what this is doing, or after the session, okay, don't delete this, we're going to put this up at lunch break, and we want to see how many people can actually follow along with the Haskell or with the closure or with whichever where people may not be as familiar with and say, can you pretty much make out what this is doing without actually knowing the language? Yeah, I think I've done it a couple of times, just showing some code. Of course, I asked permission, and then we showed it, and they explained it, and it was interesting. But exactly this was the feedback for very obscure syntax like Haskell that maybe that's not very easy to understand. And yeah, it was interesting. It was an int- always, and you end up with interesting dialogues on that. What are some of the languages that you've seen starting to come in that have kind of surprised you and you wouldn't have expected to see at this point? Are there a little more obscure languages, whether or not they're functional or just in general that you're starting to see come up and creep up? Yeah, I think once, but I really don't remember the name. Yeah, that's that's a surprise question, so... I don't really remember now the name, but there were some programming languages that I really didn't know about. Yeah, I think one of the times there was this group doing small talk. That was one of the surprises, in fact. And it was very interesting to see them do small talk. In fact, this was in France, in Lille, where one of the guys who's creating Pharaoh, the editor of small talk, attended this retreat. And he, he's a professor and he came with his students. So it was very interesting because they were teaching a lot of the others how to use Smalltalk and how to use Faro and so on. So it really brought value on a different point of view on programming languages than what they are using there. Kind of asked because, again, being over in America, and I know we have some listeners elsewhere, wasn't quite sure what some of those languages were in the popularity and use of other languages were like over in Europe as you're going through and seeing the different cities and business environments across the cities and where languages might have been niche or a surprising amount of languages actually cropped up because, again, language profiles in any different region is drastic and then you got a large number of different regions there from my understanding as far as commerce goes where it might have been a more a wider swath of different profiles, as you said. Yeah, that's definitely the case. So I think one of the languages I saw a couple of times, but not at all frequent, was Perl. It was very interesting to see for me. I think only a couple of times I saw programmers doing Perl. It was very interesting for me because they have a totally different attitude towards programming, and they look at but things not in the way that you'd expect from someone doing Java or someone doing Smalltalk or someone doing C++. They have a totally different way of seeing code, like, hey, you have this input and this output and you need to process it. And I think this also brings value to the others because this is a good and interesting point of view on how you could see programming when you need to deal with data or files or something like that. Part of what prompted the question was, I've heard Erlang is pretty big over in Europe due to Ericsson being headquartered over there. And then you've got things like Erlang Solutions out in London and 
you've got Costas Sagonis out in Greece doing things, but then you've also got the Haskell crew, who's got the University of Glasgow and some of those others, and then you got Simon Peyton Jones and those others who are at Microsoft Research out in Cambridge as well, so I wasn't sure if you were noticing that you had some really big clusters of certain languages as well in different regions. Well, yeah, definitely, but languages like this usually exist in big cities. You'd see Erlang or Haskell in big cities or near universities. You wouldn't see that in a, let's say, smaller city with a smaller market. Probably in smaller cities, you'll see the usual languages, like you'd have some Java or C-sharp on the enterprise side. You'd have some Ruby on Rails and PHP for web and JavaScript, of course. Maybe you'd have some AngularJS or jQuery. And usually, this is how I see things. So you're right, Erlang exists in some bigger cities, but it's very focused on specific cities. And in other places, you just happen to pop up with someone who's doing Erlang just by mistake or either because they love it or because they work with it, but it's just a local decision, a couple of programmers, and that's all. Okay. One of the couple last questions would be, you talk about the clean code from a functional perspective. Have you seen any resources that outline it, or is that something that is more specifically to functional programming in different languages, or is that something that you think there's at least a market for for people writing and discussing that and having good blog posts or even some smaller books or big published books for? I don't really know any books on clean code and on functional programming. So it's either that I don't know them or it's something that's really lacking in the market or in the community. But I think this comes also because of what I said. In functional programming, usually people don't focus on this. It's not their main concern. So if they will start to understand why this is something very important, probably someone very knowledgeable from the functional programming community will come out with some book or writing some blog posts or some extensive blog posts on these topics. I wasn't sure if you stumbled across anything seeing that it was a problem. Yeah, and the same with design. I mean problem with functional design is that I don't really know any resources. I would love to give a link to someone or a book to someone that's doing something during CodeRead and they would like to learn more, but I don't know anything like that. So I think we need to produce more knowledge on these topics. Maybe if one of the listeners out there who's a fan of clean code and pushes this has any resources, we can get them to let us know and try and include it as a updated link to the show note or give them a call out or get it passed on to us as well. So I think that would be useful for everybody in the community who's not quite there yet that's interested in clean code. Yeah, I would love to have something like that to help me and everyone else who I get in contact with. We're getting close to the end of the time available for you, so I want to kind of go ahead and give you the chance to do any call-outs or plugs of things that you would like to bring to the listeners' attention? What I've been focusing in the last years with CodeTreats is design. So in my view now, we are in a world where code is changed a lot because of the markets and because of the customers. 
And I think for me, design is extremely important because of that. Because we have this need of changing code often. And my definition of good software design is that design that can be changed fast without a lot of extra cost in a couple of days, in a couple of hours, no matter what the change is from the customer. And we should understand that we live as programmers because we solve problems and we should solve problems for the customers as fast as we can. And this should never be weeks or months just because we've done a poor architecture, poor design. So my call would be to try to focus more on how easy is your code to change without introducing defects, of course, and how important you are for your customer or as a partner on the technical side. And if you will be extremely efficient on this, your customer will be extremely efficient and so you will have a lot of benefits both from the morale point of view but also from the financial point of view because your customers will be extremely happy on the results. So focusing on clean code and focusing on good software design I think is the next important thing we need to do in our industry and as we were talking now especially on functional programming because I think this aspect is a bit behind OOP languages. And I definitely would recommend people go check out the Code Retreat site. It's coderetreat.org, right? Yes, yes, that's it. And we're going to announce in a couple of weeks the new date for the Global Day of Codetreat that's going to happen probably in November. So stay tuned, and if you want to organize anything, just contact us. We'll be happy to help you to facilitate or to organize. We're doing regular Google video calls to train people on how to facilitate or host the Codetreat. Yeah, I definitely encourage everybody who can to go out and try and attend one, and if possible even, to try and put one on for your community. So if the dates come out by the time this podcast goes out, I'll make sure to have them in the show notes at that time, otherwise I'll try and get them updated as soon as I find out the dates for the Global Day of Code Retreat. Okay, sounds good. Thank you very much. Where is the best place for people to find you online if they'd like to follow you and keep track of what's going on? So I have a blog post called blog.myname.adrianbolbacher.ro, Romania. But if you'll Google me, my name, you'll probably find me around. And yeah, I have a contact form. I'm happy to speak with anyone about these topics. I'm very passionate about this. So just contact me. And if you want to hear about something, I'm your man. We'll make sure to get all those links in the show notes as well. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo, and once again, I would like to thank Adi for giving his time to join me today. It was great talking with you today, Adi. Thank you very much. Hope to see you soon. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.